On this episode, we talk Merger Arb and SPACs with special guest Tom Savage from Picton Mahoney. Welcome to Think at Heart. Before we get going, I just want to mention something, okay? I'm known to be the Main Street guy in this podcast here, right? You got the Wall Street guys all the time. We got the Main Street guy. And I'm the one that busts out the suit and tie today. I had to dust off the old Canali from Harry Rosen. Not a big deal. Keep the change. Scott, why don't you stand up and show, show us the matching pants? I can't. I'm not wearing uh, Thanks for pointing that out, Tom. And I'm not uh, wearing any. But you got me looking like uh, Chris Farley from Tommy Boy in his first meeting over here. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was Tom and Savage from Picton Mahoney that you just heard from there. Thanks a lot for coming on. Really appreciate it. Why don't we start off by you just giving us a little bit about your, your who you are, what what your company does, a little bit about your background, and we'll kick it off from there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, uh, Ben and Scott, for having me on today. I'm Tom Savage. I'm a partner and portfolio manager at Picton Mahoney Asset Management. I co-manage the arbitrage strategies there. I've been at Picton for a little over a year, came over when they acquired the slice of the business that me and my partner ran at a, at a predecessor firm out here in, uh, in Vancouver. So yeah, based in, uh, based in Vancouver, father of two daughters, one of whom might interrupt us at some point. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Go ahead, Ben. Let's, let's, let's start the firing squad right out of the gate. What do you got? Right out. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so I have uh, been using the, uh, vert- I was a Vertex merger arbitrage uh, uh, previous, obviously. So I've, uh, I've met with uh, Craig a couple of years ago. I don't think I mentioned Tom, but uh, I came out to Vancouver and had seen some clients, but stopped in to go through and, and meet uh, with you. One of my favorite things that you guys used to do is you used to send the books every year out to clients. And uh, Red Notice is one of my favorite books I've ever read that you guys sent out. So, well, you know, I think uh, you guys have really been the leaders in running this kind of strategy in, in Canada, making it available to individual retail investors. And so it was something that I'd never really known about. I'd known about institutionally. You'd heard it lots from kind of the, the pensions of the world. They run this strategy internally. Obviously, you came from a proprietary trading desk where you ran uh, the bank's capital. So actually bringing it to retail investors is was uh, you guys were, were one of the first, I know that. So maybe tell me a little bit about how you learned about Merger Arb, how you came to it, maybe kind of just break it down from the start, and then we can talk a little bit about the strategy. Yeah, going back to really the start of my investment career in the late 90s, I started as a typical equity analyst at a, at a buy-side firm in Toronto, picking U.S. stocks, doing real fundamental analysis, and one of the projects I was tasked with at that time was there was it was one of the first sort of structured products that became popular in Canada. And it was a structured product that involved being long equities and selling call options, this buy right strategy. And as part of that, they put it in the structured product, 
wrapper and effectively we're thinking, oh, you could sell these calls and pay that out as a distribution and and this would be a great product. And I was sort of tasked with doing the math on that and seeing what it would look like for the firm that I worked for at the time to issue that product. And, you know, a few billion dollars had been raised in the strategy and became pretty clear after doing the math for not that long that there was a real structural flaw into how these products were designed and how they were thinking about it. And they really didn't take account of the fact that when you sell the upside of stocks and you have a portfolio of those, that you don't have any winners to offset your losers. And so over time, you have this decay of the underlying capital, which is made up for by the option premium. But if you keep paying out that option premium, then you just have this decay of the, of, of the capital. And so that was mismodeled by the people at the time. And that was the first time I sort of got interested in this more, hesitate to call it quant because I'm not a PhD in astrophysics, but you know it, it is a more quantitative approach to investing. And uh, and I had an opportunity to, to join CIBC's proprietary trading desk right sort of right after that as I was kind of getting more interested in the like, oh, this is a different way to think about the world rather than just, you know, picking what stocks you think are going up. You know, there are there are instruments that get mispriced or people don't understand that create investment opportunities. And so so it wasn't until I joined uh, the CIBC proprietary desk that I really had exposure to a lot of these different types of investing, these arbitrage investing. So things like merger arbitrage, things like volatility trading, convertible arbitrage, index ARB, interlisted ARB, that all sort of came from there. And really a lot of those things, you know, we don't have to go into the detail of what all of those are, but a lot of those strategies were kind of the, you know, if, if people don't know what the word arbitrage means, it, it used to have this sort of connotation that you could buy, a, a, you know, an ounce of gold in London and, and ship it to New York and sell it, sell it in New York and make this riskless profit because the same, the same instrument was trading at a different price in two different markets. And it was really all about market inefficiency. And, and and a lot of what we did there was about capturing that market inefficiency. You know, back 20 years ago, you could buy a share of Nortel in Toronto and sell it a second later in New York for a couple pennies higher and make that, you know, classic arbitrage type return. Unfortunately, those types of strategies, they get, we call them arbed away. They become more efficient over time. And so now that same strategy, you can maybe make, you know, a hundredth of a penny and you're going to have a, a technology investment of, you know, tens or hundreds of million, millions of dollars a year in order to keep that up. The exception really is the merger ARB strategy, which is it's, it's, it's much more about getting paid for taking a risk in a merger strategy. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. But that's that's really where, um, you know, I got exposure to that and where we really cut our teeth in terms of developing expertise on that. And then, uh, and then uh, post the 2008 global financial crisis, pretty much every bank in the world had a regulatory change that precluded them from taking that kind of proprietary risk. So can you, can you describe that for people a little bit? Whether it's in the US or Canada or Europe, it became either very expensive or just a regulatory outright ban on banks trading for their own account. It was viewed as a way of de-risking banks. And it was fairly irrelevant what banks were actually doing on their uh, on their capital account. You know, you had these sleepy arbitrage strategies that were almost never losing money or very rarely losing money. And you had people taking on pr proprietary 
CLO risk that was, you know, cost them billions of dollars in the financial crisis. And so we had things like uh, Sarbanes-Oxley or the Volcker Rule that really stopped proprietary trading of banks for their own account. And so a lot of guys like me with that with that skill set found a home at what we call hedge funds, these alternative investment styles where you're investing traditionally for institutions, pensions, ultra high net worth individuals. That, that those were the original, you know, university endowments, you know, really sophisticated investors. Those were the original investors in hedge funds. And these these weren't widely available to your typical investor who is using an investment advisor in Canada until we launched these funds as a, as a standalone product back in 2013, where it was the first arbitrage-focused product that was sold through investment advisors in, uh, in, in Canada. And then we were able to take that even a step further, where we actually had a really constructive and friendly regulatory change back in 2018, where we were able to offer these just like mutual funds. So an, an, even, uh, an even sort of friendlier approach. Awesome. Well, I got I had a million questions that have come out of that, but I got a couple of simple ones to, to clarify for people. What's a buy side analyst? What's a sell side analyst? What's what's that is? Just from a simplistic perspective, just as a point of clarification. Yeah, absolutely. So sell side means you work for a big bank and you're trying to get people to trade with that bank. So a sell-side research analyst is a lot of times the, the type of guy you'd read or girl that you'd read in the Globe and Mail or Wall Street Journal saying, oh, TELUS's earnings weren't good or were good this quarter. And when they when they say they meet or beat estimates, those estimates are the sell-side research analysts' uh, estimates. A buy side means you work for a company that's buying the, those securities, presumably. So a mutual fund, a pension fund, a firm like ours, that's what's the buy side. Uh, another point of note, you mentioned kind of the ARB, like the traditional ARB thinking. Obviously, majority of your investments are in North America, and certainly I'll have questions about if you've expanded from that. Is there still like pure ARB opportunities in the world, or has technology pretty much squeezed that all out? There are. There was a great podcast yesterday or a couple of days ago on Bloomberg Odd Lots about interlisted Bitcoin ARB in 2017 and the fact that Bitcoin was trading at a big premium in Japan. But that opportunity lasted for a few months. And generally speaking, you're right. The awareness and the technology to take advantage of those situations is infinitely more complex and difficult now than it was 20 years ago. And so even even these high-frequency trading firms that people hear about that they think Citadel or, or other firms are, are making you know these massive profits on the back of small investors, the reality is they're actually just providing liquidity to the market and making really, really, really thin spreads. And nobody really adjusts for the technology investment that they're having to make in order to achieve that. So largely speaking, that sort of, you know, equity markets are really, really efficient. Those traditional kind of arbitrage ideas, they might exist, but they're minuscule or they're not scalable. They're, they're pretty tough. Yeah. And the citadels of the world that basically spawned from what you're saying, though, right, from the banks being restricted. And so instead of flows running through the banks, now they run through citadel and, and such, right? Yeah. All right. So maybe we can get into to talk about merger arbitrage. 
I think it's, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of a, a scary topic when I introduce it to clients or when we talk about it, like Scott and I talked about it this morning. It seems like this strange thing that, that people think it's very aggressive and speculative. As I've described it to lots of clients over the years, it's more like a short duration bond. And so obviously, you know, there's lots of nuances within it, but maybe you can tell me and maybe give us a, a view on what it is that you do from a merger our perspective, and then we can dive into kind of the nuances within that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, let's make sure we're all on the same page and everyone knows what, what it is. So merger arbitrage is, is actually a really simple strategy. We buy companies or shares in companies that are being acquired by other companies that are trading at a discount to what they're being acquired for. So we don't speculate on whether a company is going to be acquired or not. We don't get involved until after the press release is, uh, you know, we read it on our Bloomberg terminal and we know exactly what the terms of a merger situation are. And we can observe in the marketplace that this company is being, yesterday it was trading for $70 and now it's been announced it's being acquired for $100. And we can see that it's trading at $98. And we think based on what's in that press release and our knowledge of that industry and the regulatory reviews, we think that M&A transaction might take three months. And so if we can buy that at 98 and make, and we know in three months time, we're going to get $100 cash, we'll make 2% in three months, which is 8% annualized. And we think given that this is a legally binding corporate obligation that we'll talk about where it can go wrong, but the starting point of M&A is you have this sort of high 90s percent probability that that it'll close, that that's actually a pretty attractive rate of return for our capital and for the risk that we're taking. And so that's really uh, merger arb in a nutshell. So is that what the probability is when a public deal gets announced, the close rates in the 90s or... It depends, but historically, empirically, that's right. I mean, there there are deals that you know right away have a much lower probability of that, and you can observe that. Typically, they trade at a spread that, that reflects that. Shaw being acquired by Rogers is one where the marketplace is saying this is a two-thirds probability chance that this deal will uh, will happen. So I see like Interpipe and Brookfield, they have something on the go-to. Interpipe's trading at a big discount. So I guess inherently you can look at them and say, all right, the market says there's not, not a high probability that this happens. So that seems like a fairly simplistic strategy. So how do you kind of manage the risks within that? So would you, there's two two public companies, one's be, being bought by the other. So how do you kind of manage the risks uh, around uh, those kinds of transactions? There's sort of three reasons why this ends up being a low volatility or low risk strategy. The first is that it is this binding corporate obligation. So when you have an M&A announcement, it's not just an announcement. You have a 100-page legal document called a definitive merger agreement that underpins exactly the commitment that the buyer is making to the uh, to the target and the you know the regulatory and the the conditionality of that transaction. And much like issuing a bond is a corporate obligation and if you don't pay interest and in principal, you there's a court process for dealing with that. The same thing exists in merger arb. It's a binding corporate obligation. And if you don't follow through on it, you get taken to court and there's a process for dealing with that. And so that fundamentally underpins why there's such a high probability of, of deal closure. This is a binding commitment. So just because there's a pandemic or the S&P is down 20% doesn't mean you get to walk away. 
The second way we manage the risk is the most traditional way to manage risk in investing, which is to diversify. People often think because they could name Shaw, Rogers, and and CP Rail buying uh, Kansas City Southern, they think we have two deals in the portfolio. And if a deal were, were to break, it could be this big, big event. I think there's a underestimation of how much M&A activity there is for us to take advantage of. You know, firstly, we're North American, which means we're 80 to 90% US. So much bigger market than than just Canada. And in that universe, there's about public targets over 100 million market cap. There's about 500 deals a year in that universe. And uh, we're quite selective. We participate in about one out of every four deals, something like that. So 120 deals a year. And then on average, from the announcement to close of a transaction is three or four months. So our, our portfolio is actually turning over three or four times a year. So that means you know, 120 deals over the course of a year means we're invested in 30 or 40 deals at any given time. So that's really important. We can now spread this pretty safe corporate obligation over these 30 different transactions so that if we do get it wrong and we have a deal break, it's a, it's a relatively small weight in our portfolio. The third way we manage the risk, which is actually the most important, but is sometimes less obvious, is that the risk in merger arbitrage largely is a very deal-specific risk. The risk we're getting paid for often is a regulatory one. So for you know, prime example is, is Shaw being acquired by Rogers. There are multiple Canadian regulatory bodies that need to opine on that merger and have the ability to block it if it doesn't meet the criteria which they're using to assess that transaction. And if they were to block that transaction, that's a specific Roger Shaw problem that has no bearing on CP Rail Kansas City or any any other deal in our portfolio. So we call that a, a, an idiosyncratic or a deal-specific risk. And, and, and that's really the vast majority of the risk that we take in merger arb as, as low as it is. And it's really important to understand that there is so there is there's little or no correlation or cross deal risk between the portfolio. And so that's powerful from a diversification perspective. We all know you can own a, the whole S&P 500, but even though you're highly diversified, you're still exposed to the, the non-diversifiable risk of owning equities. In merger are, once you get up to 30 positions that are all in, in, independent from one another, it really keeps the volatility and risk quite low. Just wondering, like you mentioned that you participate, I think you said in about one in four deals, let's say. How, how do you, what's part of the decision-making process of which deals you actually participate in? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an assessment of the risk, which is, again, back to regulatory risk. And within regulatory, it's usually antitrust. Those regulators in Canada and the U.S., pretty much their sole job is to look at M&A transactions and determine if they would harm consumers uh, and be anti-competitive and to block them if they were to be the case. That's where a lot of our expertise lies is, you know, having looked at hundreds of mergers a year for decades, we're kind of experts on assessing that that regulatory risk and not only assessing it, but pricing it. It's not enough to say, yeah, there's risk here, let's skip it. There's risk here. I wouldn't do this for a 5% annualized rate of return, but I would do this for an 8% annualized return. You know, back to that sort of credit analogy that I like to use. It's it's like a, a loan officer saying, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't lend to this person or this company at 5%, but I'd lend to them at 8% based on this risk criteria that we use. Obviously, completely different risk and completely different analysis, but it's similar discipline in terms of pricing of that risk. It, it needs to fit our pricing criteria vis-a-vis -vis the risk that we've assessed. 
Yes. So would you split those in? Would you say like we have 30% targeting four to six, we got 30% targeting six to eight. Is that how you do it or something along those lines? Yeah, we don't, we don't bucket it as specifically as that, but there's certainly the core of the portfolio. We sort of call it vanilla rate of return stuff. So just sleepy stuff that we think has very low regulatory risk. That's sort of in that high 90s percent probability of success that is giving us something like a 400, 500 basis point spread over short-term rates, but unlevered before management fees. That's the core of what we do. And that's a pretty big opportunity set within that. And then outside of that, there's frankly riskier stuff, but riskier stuff that we like because we think we're being more than compensated for, uh, for taking on that risk. And so just before we kind of leave on those specific deals and I have a few more questions, but I know we've talked in the past, sometimes you would look at a deal and you'd say, maybe I want to be long one company and short the other to, to do that. Or are those kind of deals, is, is that part of what you do? Yeah, exactly. So the example I gave you of this, you know, theoretical stock with the $100 cash bid, that's as simple as it can get. The other form of consideration you can have in a merger is that you're, you're being acquired for stock or a mix of cash and stock. And in that case, we know in three months, we're going to receive 0.6 shares of ABC Corp. Well, we, we can't just be long the target and then hope that ABC Corp doesn't go up or down too much in the next three months. That would be taking equity risk. But what we can do is we can pre-sell the ABC shares that we know we're receiving in three months. And how, how do you pre-sell that? Well, you borrow them and you sell them. That's short selling, right? So in that case, we will short the acquiring company in the in the ratio that is defined by the merger agreement. And, and at that point, we've locked in that spread. We don't care where ABC trades over the next three months. Just as long as that deal closes and we, we've re- we receive those shares, we've locked in uh, a spread. Would you do that with options ever? Is that only? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's uh, there's merger arb through different instruments. So our job is to tailor the best unit of reward for every unit of risk that we can for the same corporate event. And what are the different instruments we can use to that to do that? Obviously, we've talked about buying the stock and potentially shorting the acquire. There are options. So you know we're tra- we're dealing with publicly traded securities, typically pretty large ones, you know, mid cap US equities, typical market cap, 10, 20 billion dollars. So actually quite a liquid options market for us. And that allows us to potentially alter the risk reward of of the trade and make it more attractive. It would be great to say, oh, we can buy puts on every single M&A transaction. And even if it breaks, we'll never lose money. Unfortunately, the spreads aren't wide enough and nobody's going to price a put that cheaply. But there are certainly are ways that we use options to improve the risk reward. And then as well, another instrument we can use is the bond market. So oftentimes when there's an M&A transaction, there's uh, something happening in the publicly issued bonds of, of the target company as well. Oftentimes you have a contractual right to put the bond back to the company if there's a change of control. And oftentimes the implied probability of success or the risk reward that is being shown in the equity market is very different than, than what, we're, what we're seeing in the bond market. And that truly is a bit of an inefficiency. And we can tailor a position that either is supremely advantageous or, you know, we've even had cases where 
we could be short the equity, not because we think the deal is going to close, but because we can create a position where we're long the bond, short the equity. And even if the deal doesn't close, we wouldn't lose money or we could even make money. And so that's wonderful uh, situation whenever that arises. So we certainly have a lot of tools in the toolbox, even though it's a pretty straightforward strategy at its core. That's very interesting for sure. And so just as a point of clarification, four to 500 basis points is four to 5% above risk-free, which is basically Canadian T-bills, US T-bills, right? Yep. Any more questions, Scott, on that before we, we move on? No, I can't. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting to the SPACs. I mean, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm holding my tongue over here. No, I'm trying to get to, 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 uh, to understand the basis of the strategy. And, you know, I think this is the thing that's, that's the most interesting, right? Is that there's tons of opportunities. And as I talk to clients, people don't realize the amount of deals that actually come out every year. I think the, the last point before we exit kind of your discussion around deals is, so would you actively trade those deals? So hypothetically, you buy it, it's a 10% spread, that spread closes it, you take off the position and restart. Is that some part of the process? Yeah, exactly. Like, again, we're dealing with public capital markets. So these aren't static prices. You know, we don't just put it on day one and now we live with it for three months until it closes. These are liquid instruments and the spreads change and and the news flow changes. You get a regulatory approval or you get an announcement that a regulatory approval is taking longer than you thought. Or you get a data point about whether People are complaining about the market power of this potentially uh, monopolistic new entity, and you change your mind about what you thought about the regulatory risk at the outset. And so that's really important. And we don't like the liquidity in the in the strategy just because it's nice to be liquid. We like it because it gives us the chance to generate more alpha from trading and change our mind. So that's really important. One deal I'd like to ask you about, I know we don't want to talk about too much deals before we go into SPACs, but for anyone following M&A, the LVMH Tiffany, Tiffany's deal was was a big one that kind of played out in the media over many months. I actually don't even know how it settled out. That was an event, I guess, where COVID hit, a lot, like lots of moving parts. You know, what, what actually transpired with that one? That's a great one to talk about. It's kind of a Bad story, good story. So you had LVMH, one of the you know largest luxury brand companies in the world, acquiring Tiffany's that everybody would know. And that deal was, and I don't remember the specific timing, but was announced just prior to the pandemic. So just prior to February, March of 2020. And obviously we had the pandemic. Obviously there was a massive slowdown in retail sales, luxury sales, And the acquirer there, LVMH, had clear case of buyer's remorse. And they weren't very shy about it at all. Like usually you're pretty behind closed doors, but there was uh, a lot of fairly public statements that they didn't want to buy this thing anymore. And, you know, and yet they had this legally binding contract to acquire uh, uh, Tiffany's. So not surprisingly, the market, uh, the share price of Tiffany's traded way below the market bid. But what actually happened is he ended up getting it for, I I don't have the exact, I think it was about a 3% discount. So you have a huge company in one of the biggest pandemics, most disrupted markets, and he ends up getting a 3% discount. So you could say, oh, look, you know, this M&A situation, the buyer was able to get a discount. But at the end of the day, if if you have every once in a while, you run into this kind of massive tail risk and the contract is strong enough where you're only taking a 3% haircut, like that, that kind of speaks to the strength of, of a merger agreement. 
and why that's a pretty robust agreement on which to sort of uh, risk your capital. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Right? Like Bernard and O's top 10 richest guys in the world, and he can't make a change in this environment. That shows that the agreements are pretty ironclad. That's a, that's really fundamentally core to how to what we need uh, in order to invest in this in this strategy and that's fundamentally core to why our geography is relatively limited to sort of North America and very occasionally you know very developed western Europe because in most parts of the world you, you don't have capital markets and legal systems that are as robust to to afford that so yeah for sure Awesome. Awesome. That's a, that's a great summary. I say the last thing I want to hit before we go into SPACs is just obviously most of the uh, income that you generate within that strategy ends up being capital gains as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason this strategy exists for our clients, why they use it is to replace bonds in a portfolio. Uh, it's, you know, similar type of volatility profile, similar type of return targeting. This is meant to be part of the sleepy sort of ballast part of a, of a portfolio, but it does have the advantage that it's achieved by, by owning equities and therefore the return is, is a capital gain return. So it, why don't you talk about how we use this in, uh, well, how we would use the strategy in client portfolios, for example? Yeah. Like how, how do people buy this? Yeah, so it is. Uh, so as Tom mentioned, there's two versions. I mean, the first one that I had bought was the hedge fund version. So obviously that wasn't readily available to everybody until you become a portfolio manager. Once I became portfolio manager, I had the ability to kind of sign those offering memorandums that would allow clients to purchase it. So we buy it in a fund version, and I would see it as a as a bond replacement as well. So it actually has. Uh, super low standard deviation. I think it's actually lower than most bond portfolios, most bond funds or ETFs. And so I, I typically like it in, in a non-registered account, but it can go anywhere. But uh, as Tom mentioned, they came out with uh, with a change in 2018 to allow you to purchase it as just a straight, they call them liquid alternatives now. And so liquid alternatives are just, I guess, a fancy way to allow mutual funds to do things that are a little bit different. A certain percentage of the portfolio can be short, can do options, a lot of different things that funds weren't able to do in the past. So I would I would slide this into portfolios uh you know, very conservative clients, um, any anywhere in a portfolio where I'm looking to have bond-like uh, protection, but equity-like returns. So that's that's how I would see it fitting into the portfolios. Okay, great. Shall we move on to SPACs? Yeah, yeah so I know you're ready to go for that. So you can say a few things before I jump into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, uh, you know, I don't have anything personal with them, but, uh, you know, they're just such a, seems like a, such a hot topic right now, right? It seems like everybody, the SPACs are coming up everywhere. I was reading on Bloomberg today that uh, there was 300 SPACs issued in the first quarter alone, and there's actually a huge backlog in paperwork that uh, is holding friendly uh, anymore moving forward. So, Tom, what do you think? Like, why the big explosion in SPACs? Yeah, so it's been amazing. There's a couple mischaracterizations i think around SPACs. so we'll, we'll get into that i mean i guess the first is people think they're new SPACs have been around since the 90s and they've been part of the funds really since pretty much the inception of uh, of the funds and it was always the, a, a really tiny esoteric sort of financial backwater five years ago it was a billion dollar market maybe five SPACs. 
and nobody would ever want to talk about it. And, you know, we'd, we'd write about them and, you know, as a small little footnote in our, in our quarterly letter and no, no one had any interest, but it's really snowballed since then. You know, a few of the deals that were done five years ago were actually pretty good deals and they made money and, and that caught the attention of some, you know, more sophisticated, more well-known sponsors you know, three or four years ago, some some private equity firms, some investment banks, and uh, and they did some deals that were actually not bad and did pretty well. And then uh, and and there's been sort of a a virtuous circle where better sponsors, more well known sponsors, have gotten involved. There's been a a, a more well known path to or well trodden path for SPAC for co- private companies to go public through SPACs. And that's uh, and they've done pretty well, and that's attracted more capital into the space, which has attracted more sponsors and better sponsors, and that's brought attracted better target companies. And so there's there's been this virtuous cycle happening for a few years, and then uh, and then it went on steroids in in 2020 and the very early part of 2021. You know, we can talk about SPACs a lot, but I, you know, I I, th- I think from a high level, it's really important to understand sort of the size of the SPAC market versus the big ocean that is the the equity markets. And so there's a couple hundred billion dollars in SPACs out there, which is huge and beyond our wildest expectations of this market that used to be a billion or two five years ago. But it's really intermediating a, you know, $20 trillion NASDAQ market and, you know, a $50 trillion U.S. equity market. And, it sounds crazy to say, but two hundred billion dollars is actually not that much money when you when you when you like you know a, a big M and A deal for us could be an eighty billion dollar uh, transaction, and so the size of the SPAC market versus that type of analogy, or you know, there's there's lots of different ways you can frame it. You can say, oh look, there's you know the, all the private equity firms have these portfolio companies. There are thousands of these private companies that could potentially go public through merging with a SPAC. There are hundreds of these unicorns that could potentially go public through merging with a SPAC. I'm not defending the like 300 SPACs or whatever it was that came public in Q1. That is excessive. We definitely don't need that many SPACs. And we've seen a dramatic slowdown in the last few weeks. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. But the short answer or the short view is that they're, they've been around a long time. They actually serve a pretty useful purpose and they'll continue to be around. The excess of issuance that we saw in late 20 and early 21, I think wasn't particularly healthy. Um, and, uh, and you know, we've seen that abate and hopefully it stays that way. It sounds to me like you don't really care about SPACs, huh? You're really downplaying. You're, you're like brushing it off. Like, yeah, whatever. It's small potatoes. You know, SPACs have been one of the most attractive risk reward trades I've seen in my career. And it's, and it's amazing that it was wrapped in such a simple instrument. I mean, it, it literally couldn't have been easier. You, you're literally just buying a public equity. You know, there's there's no exotic derivative here. It's observable to anybody. There was a certain type of investor that's hyper-focused on the downside and, and we're that kind of investor. And so that's what attracted us to the structure many years ago was that it, you do have this underlying treasury bill collateral and no SPAC has ever failed to return its its trust value. Yeah, obviously SPAC, uh, what's the what's the definition? What's SPAC stand for? Yeah, SPAC stands for a special purpose acquisition company. Yep. 
The reason they exist is it's a way for a private company to go public in the U.S. by merging with a SPAC. So if you're if you're a private company and you want to and you want to become public, you want to access the the public markets. Uh, you sort of have three options. You can do a traditional IPO that we all know how that works. You can merge with a SPAC, and more recently, there's been something called a direct listing, which is where you just sort of put yourself on the exchange, and that's pretty rare. But the really big tech companies are able to do that. So that's why they exist. How they get started is you have a sponsor who's typically a well-known investor or a well-known sort of Fortune 500 management team that decides they're going to raise money for for a SPAC. Typical size is $300 million. That That's the money they're going to raise. They raise that in a traditional IPO. So they get a, a firm like a Deutsche Bank or a Credit Suisse or a Citibank or Goldman Sachs to, to underwrite their traditional IPO on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. They raise this $300 million. That's where we get involved as, as SPAC investors. We, we buy these things in their IPO. And what's really important to understand about the sort of SPAC structure is that every penny that's raised of that $300 million put into a trust account at J.P. Morgan Trust. They all use J.P. Morgan Trust. They're invested in U.S. government T-bills with a maturity of less than six months. And there's a trustee overseeing those funds, and they can't leave that account without shareholder approval. And so this doesn't go sit in, in these guys' bank account, and they can fly around North America on private jets for two years looking at deals. Every penny is invested in T-bills in this trust account where we have this unassailable right to redeem our capital and, and get our money back. And that's uh, that's fundamentally core to why this has been such a, a low-vol, low-downside uh, strategy for us. So the SPAC, they have a couple of years to go find a target company that they want to bring public through through, a, through merging with its SPAC. And when they do that, they come back a year later, let's say, and say, look, here, here's the company we want to buy. And, uh, you know, example, we had one uh, just, just this week where, um, if you guys remember Tops, the, the baseball card company, it's been privately held for, for quite a while. It's an 80-year-old company. And still making sports cards, and they have a few, you know, confectionery items. If you guys remember Ring Pops and Bazooka Joe, my kids thought I was cool because I mentioned Ring Pops. And they're going public by merging with a SPAC. And there's three things we can do, you know, following that announcement. We can sell the SPAC. We can do that at any time. We can say, look, that's a really interesting deal, but we just like our money back. We get to hand back the common share of a SPAC. And I should have said, when in the IPO, we get both a common share and a, and a fraction of a warrant. And so we can hand back the common share and just get our $10 back plus interest. They all price at $10. Or we could say, oh, man, I love baseball cards. I want to be an investor in uh, in tops. And, uh, and you know, I think, you know, collectibles are, are making a comeback and maybe they'll get into NFTs and start selling uh, virtual blockchain baseball cards. And that'll be huge. Obviously, that third idea of being this equity investor in a baseball card company, that's not a arbitrage situation. You know, you no longer have the ability to get your $10 back plus interest. So, you know, for us, that's not really a, an option that we would do in the funds. There are other pools of capital at our firm that could potentially make that kind of investment, but that's not really our mandate. And so really what we're doing is um, if we can sell for a higher price than the redemption value, then we'll do that. If not, we'll just get our money back. It's actually an incredibly simple trade, but an incredibly powerful uh, risk reward equation. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, that scenario is excellent. In fact, you know, I I spoke with uh, Mark Yusko a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if you know Mark, but uh, he launched a SPAC ETF in the U.S. And so he's been talking about kind of trying to run a similar strategy that you're talking about as a standalone closed-end fund in the U.S. Not a lot of people doing this kind of thing, but, you know, it's a really interesting piece. And so so you get your money back and then the warrants. So the warrants are your kicker, right? Like that's where you, where you make your upside. Because of the structure, no SPAC has ever failed to return its its trust value because it's just sitting at a trust company invested in T-bills. So it's, it's, it's pretty secure. But then the question is, well, how do you get paid for doing this? If all you do is put your money in a cash box and take it out a year or two later, like that's not very interesting. So you do get that little bit of T-bill interest that you earned in this trust account. Obviously, that's not a meaningful return these days. Two, you do get this warrant. So, you know, typical SPAC, you have a third or half a warrant as part of your IPO purchase. They all have an $11.50 strike price. They all have a five-year life to them. So they're not way out of the money. They have lots of time value to them. So so from a Black-Scholes perspective, that's how we value options and warrants. A lot of real value to them. And more importantly, they're publicly traded and there's a real bid in the market for these things uh, because of because of the, the math behind them. And so that if you just assume, okay, they're going to announce these deals and the, and there's the stocks will trade around 10 bucks and we'll get this little bit of interest and we'll get we'll sell this warrant. You can get to sort of a mid single digit rate of return, similar to what we talked about in the uh, in the merger arb strategy before fees with no leverage. And that's sort of what attracted us to it in, in the first place. You know, hey, this return is really similar to our merger arb return, similar, you know, contractual right to get this money. It's catalyzed by an M&A event and it's very low volatility and very low risk because of the, the structure. The third way you get paid in SPACs and where where we've generated outsized return in the last year has been, okay, you now have this announced transaction, this Tops baseball card deal. And there's a window of time between when that deal gets announced. It got announced yesterday, I think it was. And it'll take three or four months to close. And you've got this, you know, this investment, this sponsor, this, this company that are now going to spend three or four months convincing the world that this is a great investment, effectively doing like an IPO roadshow. And there's a chance the market gets really excited about this transaction and it could trade, you know, well above that $10 trust value that we have. And in fact, that's what happened with uh, with Tops. It closed at, you know, $11.50 roughly uh, yesterday. And it was trading, you know, at slightly below 10 before that, I think. So, you know, you made a 15% return in a day because they announced this deal and the market thought, oh, actually, like this this is a, a pretty cool business. And so obviously we're not going to redeem it for $10 if we have the ability to sell it at a big a big premium to that. And and last year we had a whole host of, of business combinations announced a lot in the electric vehicle space. And we all know from Tesla that there's a massive market op- appetite for the narrative of vehicle electrification. And it, it doesn't matter that perhaps revenue and profitability are many, many years out. There's sort of a readiness for um, – or appetite uh, amongst investors for that type of story. And so we had a, a huge number of wins where we were selling SPACs for 15 or $20. You know, again, back to my, like, what are we really doing here? We're intermediating this sort of NASDAQ tech 
bubble, for lack of a better word. You know, the the bubble isn't in SPACs. The bubble was in the fact that every time a SPAC announced a deal with an electric vehicle company, there was a wall of, you know, some retail, but also some institutional money willing to buy these these story stocks. And it really an environment that I hadn't seen since 99 in terms of a frothy retail market. And so SPACs were a small little way to asymmetrically intermediate that appetite. And that's really where the outsized return came from. Yeah, like their quantum scape, like some of these names went, went crazy. So, no, that's great. That's a good summary. I guess I would think about it too as uh, you probably – you might not think about it this way, but just to clarify for people, like most of the deals you participate in from uh, m and side, these are giant companies. And then you kind of barbell the other end, like these are small cap – SPACs are small cap companies. Yeah, I mean, you're right. A typical SPAC is $300 million, but the target companies are starting or or have been, you know, we, we've had a few $10 billion enterprise value transactions. The sweet spot is more like 2 or $3 billion. You know, you have a $300 million SPAC doing a transaction that has an enterprise value of 2 or $3 billion. That all kind of works pretty well. The dilution of the SPAC all of a sudden isn't that big of a isn't that big of a hit to the math, and you know a two or three billion dollar company is big enough that people care about it and it's liquid. And there's enough of those companies around, so that's sort of the sweet spot now. But you're right, it's not they're not fifty billion dollar M and A events uh, like in our merger strategy. So, so I just have a question a little bit about kind of those three things you said. You got that choice of direct listing, an IPO, or a SPAC. What's, is there a big material cost differential between those three routes, or is it pretty similar? It's pretty similar, definitely between IPO and SPAC. When you sort of look at the dilution of a SPAC and the cost of a, of a standard IPO, not massively out of whack. I mean, you do make assumptions about dilution uh, in that math. Direct listing is is less expensive, but really, op- really open to the biggest companies that people sort of know about. And then you could argue whether there's you know a hidden cost in terms of cost of capital and whether they could have achieved a better outcome if if they you know. But it's it's pretty opaque and, and hard to debate. The biggest reason that people would use a SPAC versus a traditional IPO is it's actually in some ways there's a regulatory arbitrage at play. So merging with a SPAC is an M&A event. It's actually not an IPO. And so it's regulated as an M&A event and not as an IPO. And we and you know if you remember back to 99, 2000, the last time we had a really, really hot IPO market, there was a bunch of abuses. And as a result of that, there was a bunch of new regulation. And so an IPO if you go public in an IPO, it's a very, very highly regulated process. You have a prospectus and, you know, you can meet with potential investors, but you basically, you know, even the biggest funds in the world get an hour long meeting with you on your roadshow and you and you can't say anything that's not in your prospectus. And importantly, you can't make any forward looking projections. In merging with a SPAC, that's totally different. It's a merger. It, yes, it results in your company becoming a public entity, but it does so by 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 merging, and so it's regulated. Uh, there's a different legal document that that is filed, and there's a totally different process. So you can um, there's an ability for investors to go and do you know three weeks of deep due diligence on this 
new battery technology company, maybe you want to send your team of six PhDs to go figure out if this thing actually works or not. And the whole value of this company, you know, it might have this blue chip roster of investors in a $5 billion enterprise value, but it's not going to have revenue for three, four, five years, but maybe it has commercial agreements. You want to go read those commercial agreements, do the diligence on that. You can do all of that in a in this SPAC uh, merger. And importantly, that company can make forward-looking statements and say, look, we've never generated any revenue or EBITDA, but here's how we're going to achieve these forward-looking projections. And, and as an investor, you can either choose to believe them or not, but at least you can talk about them. So that's that's a really important and, – and that's why SPACs have been really popular with these sort of late-stage venture stories where all the value is in the future and you need to be able to talk about it and tell the story. And it's really hard to do that in an IPO and much easier to do that in a SPAC merger. So that sort of regulatory difference or arbitrage is, is fundamentally core to actually why SPACs are, have a reason to exist. That opens up kind of that private equity type investment sleeve to individuals, right? Because these are still like private equity type companies for the most part. Well, I mean, Tops is a different bailiwick, but uh, you know, a lot of these would be kind of that that future-looking growth potential companies. Is an interesting space. I, I continue to follow it as well. I own some of the names too, and maybe we can just kind of give me a comment on. We'll call it the last six weeks of SPAC trading. You know, I, I know at one point uh, that I noted there is somewhere north of seventy SPACs trading below ten. Uh, when you're not, I can't say guaranteed. When you're assume that you're going to get back ten dollars uh, based on the treasuries, like oh, so I guess that's an opportunity. What is that? People just dump. It because they need liquidity, or historically, SPACs, SPAC common shares did used to normally trade below ten. So historically, if you had ten dollars in trust, you know, a SPAC common share that had you know a year or two of life left to it might trade at nine eighty, and that was kind of the the discount you needed to effectively rent the capital of whoever was holding that that SPAC share. And you know the, your fraction of a warrant was worth twenty cents, and so you were back to your sort of ten dollar IPO price. So that's how it worked for many, many years. And yeah, you know, obviously in stressed environments, maybe it was nine seventy or nine sixty, and but it it wasn't massively far away from nine eighty. And and obviously, if the SPAC was going to mature the next day, it was nine ninety nine or whatever. Then we had the environment that we had in sort of late twenty twenty, which was that it seemed like no matter what deal a SPAC announced, the market loved it, and this SPAC common share would trade, you know, to 12 or 14 or $20. And the market sort of reassessed and said, well, it probably doesn't make sense for all these SPACs that are looking for deals to trade at 980 if every time they announce a deal, they trade at $13 or whatever the number's going to be. And so for the first time, we really started to see SPACs that hadn't announced, hadn't announced a deal trading at a premium to, to, to trust. And that premium got as high in sort of early February as, uh, as, as 5%. So SPACs looking for deals on average trading at 1050. And we'd never seen that before. And that sort of changes the whole risk reward equation of SPACs. Now, if these SPACs don't announce a deal or they announce a deal that people don't like, they're going to go down. They're going to go back to, to 10 not huge amounts of downside, but some amount of downside. You know, as investors, we had to react to that. We did sell about a third of our of our SPAC portfolio as it as it approached that that higher that that premium. 
And then when the when the Nasdaq had well, wasn't really a huge wobble, but you know some volatility in in mid February and March, the thing you know the Nasdaq as a whole wasn't that bad, but the really sort of story concept stocks uh, were the ones that got re- hit really hard, and that that had a direct impact on SPACs. And all of a sudden, when SPACs announced a transaction, they went straight to ten dollars. There was no excitement. There was no frothiness. And the market again decided, well, hey, maybe they shouldn't trade at 1050 if every time they announce a deal, it's just going straight to 10. And so very quickly, this back market normalized back to 980-ish. And then it actually overshot a little, I would say, um, by sort of mid to late March, was trading around 960-ish, which was as low as we saw in March of 20, which is obviously you know one of the most stressed market environments that we'd ever seen in our 20 to 30 year careers. That seemed a little excessive as well. That's where we were really deploying a lot more capital, sort of buying back what we had sold earlier. And now we're back to what I would characterize as a normal SPAC environment where you know common shares are trading around 980. The good thing is, you know, I talked about common shares. So the unit as a whole, you, you might've seen some units trading at 990, something like that, or 980. What that does is it turns off the taps on IPOs. Who's going to buy an IPO for ten dollars when I can go buy, you know, literally billions of dollars of units at uh, at nine ninety or nine eighty? And so we had a bunch of transactions that had really hard time pricing, and then the underwriters just turned off the taps. And so in the last couple of weeks, we've had I don't know two or three spacs priced, which is great. There needed to be a a turning off of the taps, and now we've seen that. And so the market feels healthier now than it did sort of two months ago. So just as a point of nuance within the funds, how do you mark the warrants into your NAV? And the NAV is the just the value of the fund. How, how do you do that? Very important question. The, the warrants are all publicly traded. So they're marked at, at, their, at their trading prices. We don't say, oh, you know, we think the implied vol of this five-year warrant should be 30% and therefore we're marking it at that. You know, it's, they're all transactable marks. Just before I think we would leave SPACs and probably start to wrap up here, the original IPO is where you participate. So is it a challenge to get allocation now that it's heated up or do you still have the ability to, to do that? In late 2020 and early 21, it was, it was a challenge. People saw the risk return equation that you know, we'd been taking advantage of for years and you know, other funds as well, but it was pretty fringe. All of a sudden, it wasn't so fringe, and not surprisingly, there was a lot more competition entering the space, a lot more capital entering the space. We're in a pretty good position, you know, as a firm. We manage uh, approximately nine billion dollars. We've been SPAC investors for a long time. We know all the underwriters and bankers and traders, etc. You know, we we have we have the relationships to to certainly um, make sure that we're looked after properly on the allocation side, and it serves as a bit of a barrier to entry from that perspective. But then, ironically, when the market gets cold, all of that is out the window, and you could you know anyone could buy as many SPACs as they want at nine ninety you know a couple of weeks ago. So. So it's interesting how that flips around. And, you know, by the way, like, you know, the last couple of weeks aren't totally abnormal. I mean, this the size of the move was a bit larger, but we had this exact same thing happen in October of 20. SPACs started trading at a discount again. Market was cold. And then we had a few hot deals announced and it all, and it all warmed up again. And we had the same thing happen in August of 20. It's a little, uh, it's a bit cyclical, which is not something we love. Like we don't want to be sort of up 
one month down the next. Like that's not really what our mandate is. You know, we're kind of hoping to be honest that this equilibrium that we're at right now is sort of a steady state equilibrium. And, you know, you won't see the dramatic upside volatility that we had in, in 20, but also less likely to see a drawdown, you know, like we had in the last uh, last few weeks. I think that's good. I think we've but put in about an hour here. I got lots more questions, but maybe we'll leave those for another day. I just want to say congratulations. You've been doing very well. You guys have had really great numbers, very consistent, steady returns, and, and I appreciate what you've been doing. I also appreciate you taking the time and, and taking us through kind of the strategy, how it's thought about. And you know, I, I still say as I introduce this kind of thinking to clients, it sounds complicated, but I think you've done a great job of simplifying it and helping people understand what it is and, and why it's appropriate within portfolios. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. And, you know, I, I do have a passion for sort of investor education and demystifying, you know, some of the stuff that we're doing. Appreciate all the questions and I hope this has been useful for your listeners. And, you know, we do pride ourselves as kind of being a partner and an educator as a firm. So uh, feel, feel free to reach out if, uh, if there are any other questions. Okay, well, that's it for episode number 14, Think at Heart. We'll see you next time. 